Well, if you've been with us at all this last month, you'll know that uh, every January we take about a month to focus on or refocus on our vision as a church. Our vision is to be called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. So this month, our particular focus of renewal has been on the renewal of people. We've been asking the question about how, how do people change? How do people change? The last two weeks, we've looked at essentially the great truth of the union with Jesus that Paul talks about in Colossians 3, that we change through our supernatural transformation as we're connected to Jesus Christ, and he begins to work within us. And today, we're looking at how that happens externally in our life through our habits. Uh, we've also been hearing each week just a snippet of a story that we've been releasing fully on our podcast series, um, a story of someone in our congregation who's experienced change. And so this week, I just want to play you a snippet from one of our deacons, uh, Richard Nance, uh, and his story of change, which has been a, a pretty powerful story. I hope you can hear it fully this week, uh, but let's just hear just a, a portion of that story now. At night, I, I started to clue in to this is not going well, mm-hmm. like this life that you're living you're, you're, you're going nowhere. Mm. Um, well, you're going somewhere, but it's not where you want to go. Um, but at night I would envision like that snowball coming down the hill after me. And it was just, I was trying to outpace it and I, I couldn't stop. I knew as soon as I turned around, there was just years of, of things that I had to face of bad decisions mm. of life consequences. And so I just had to keep running, keep drinking. And so anyways, the drinking, drinking continued to escalate. Um, and then it sort of ended the way probably it ends for a lot of people, uh, you know, behind bars <laughs> in a jail cell, uh, waking up there. Um, not necessarily for the first time, but uh, this was the last time. Um, but I just, in the, in the moment, I just knew... Um, this time I couldn't talk my way out of it. Mm. Um, and finally kind of everything, um, all the ugly parts of me, all the failure, um, all of it I knew was going to be exposed. Mm. Um, and there was joy in that. In that moment, there, mm. there was a lot of release. There was a lot of joy. Like, I, like I'd, I, I'd been I waiting for finally. Stop running right. as the snowballs hit. Yes, I knew it. I knew it had hit, and there was a great relief in that. Um, hmm. and, and sort of, um, you know, once, once my life was finally laid bare, then there was finally space for, for, for grace to come in, for, for God to come in and meet those various needs that I had, the depression, anxiety, um, the shame, the guilt, there, there was room there for him to work once, I, once my life was opened up. Let's pray as we go to God's word, and then we'll be hearing from our preacher this morning, Justin Early, who is one of our shepherding elders, uh, and he and his wife, Lauren, have four boys, and active part of our church, and Justin's going to be preaching to us about new habits. So let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your work in Richard's life that mirrors your work in all of our lives, the way that you meet us in the valley and show us your grace, your unconditional love and mercy. We pray now for the reading and preaching of your word, 
that we would not only hear it, but we would be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word, friends, from Colossians 3, verses 5 through 14. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Love is at the root of everything. All learning, all parenting, all relationships. Love or the lack of it. That's a quote. Wonder if you know who it's from. I'll give you a clue. He also said, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Won't you be my neighbor? You got it. Fred Rogers of the 30-plus year running children's show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, where Mr. Rogers famously and habitually walks in the door the same way every day, exchanges his jacket for a sweater the same way every day, habitually changes his shoes the same way every day. So I'm sure you know of this show and the way that through sheer repetition, the words and the messages of Mr. Rogers sank down into the bones of children like myself who grew up watching it. What you may not know, though, is that Fred Rogers was a sort of missionary to television. So Mr. Rogers wanted to go to seminary, but after he graduated school, he came home for the first time and saw a TV and the strange things on it. And he said, this is an incredible tool. Why is it being used this way? And so he ends up, he does go to seminary, but he's ordained as a Presbyterian minister sent to television. Why would he do that? This is why. Fred Rogers understood that the images that we habitually gaze at form us. And he cared about that. He cared about that for us and he especially cared about that for children. He, uh, he was worried about how the habits of screens were forming people. So Mr. Rogers was actually uh, famously, uh, he understood habit. He, he woke up at 5.30 every morning to read, to pray, to write, and then he would always go swimming. And every day after he went swimming, he would weigh himself. And every day for a long, long period of his life, he weighed exactly 143 pounds. Very slight man. <laughs> and he kept it that way intentionally. You know why? Because to him, those numbers represented the numbers of letters in the words, I love you. In the life of Fred Rogers is this um, eccentric but beautiful connection 
between love and habit. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. So let me read this quote one more time, this time in full. You ready? Love is at the root of everything. All learning, all parenting, all relationships, love or the lack of it. And what we see and hear on the screens is in part who we become. So this January, we've been doing this series on change, as Corey said. And we've been trying to answer the question, how, how does it work? How do we actually change? And my big idea for you this morning is this. Habits change us. The routines, the semi-conscious things, the rhythms that we do over and over every day, they don't just shape our body, they shape our heart, they shape our soul, they shape what we love. This is an important development in this series because the past two weeks we've been talking about how God changes us from the inside out. And the idea I want to introduce this morning is that during and after that happens, there are competing forces trying to shape us from the outside in, and they are often coming through habit. So I, want, I got two points for you this morning. Point one is how does that happen? How is it that habits actually shape our loves? And we'll see that they can actually deform our loves. So point two is, well, if we start with the love of God, how can love then shape our habits? All right? Those are the two points. Before I get into it, I just want to reread verse nine and 10, because nine and 10 sort of encapsulate the core of my argument here. Paul says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. All right, so we've heard this passage now three Sundays in a row. There's this old self and the new self. Here's what I want you to think of. I I want you to see the old self as the self that is desperately trying to earn love. It wants to be loved, and thus it acts out in all these former practices, trying to get its love. The new self is the redeemed self that knows that God loves it, and that desperation is quieted so it can act out in the world in these acts of service, in these these communal habits of love. And Paul says when we do that, we become formed in the image of God, which, of course, God is love. So you got to understand... Mr. Rogers is is biblically correct. Love or the lack of it is at the root of who we are becoming. Think about this in your life. What you are after is not actually career success. It's not actually a better body. It's not actually a higher income. It's not actually a better spouse. What you long for is a new self because you long to feel lovable. That's what all your striving is about. And, and all are escaping, same thing. What we're after is not really a good nap, a break, a high, a way to zone out or blackout. What we are after is a way to silence that inner voice of the old self that keeps nagging and saying, you're not very lovable. This is the fundamental war of the human condition going on in you, going on in me. But here's the point for this morning. It doesn't just show up at our biggest, most extreme major decision. It shows up every day under the radar in our mundane, ordinary, very ignorable habits. And my argument is that those habits are some of the most powerful shaping forces in your life. They change what you love and they change whether or not you think you are lovable. Let me start off this point one with an example from my own life. So 
I'm a lawyer, I'm a business lawyer. When I first became a mergers and acquisitions attorney about five and a half years ago, I was working with um, a London office from Richmond. So London's about five-ish hours, depending on daily savings time, ahead of us. So every morning, I would wake up to half a day's worth of emails from London. And I wanted to do well in this new job. So my, I, I unconsciously f- sort of formed a new habit of opening up my phone and scrolling through the London emails. One morning, a couple months into this, I wake up because one of my sons is crying. And I get up, and about five minutes later, I'm composing a response to this request from the London office. And by the way, they don't care if I respond right now. They think I'm asleep. But I'm, I suddenly realize my son is still crying. And it suddenly hit me, whoa, how have I become a person who is more in tune with the cries of my office than I am with the cries of my own children? I don't want to be that way. I never thought I would become that way. How did this happen? Here's what happened. My heart through habit went somewhere. What, What my head was asking my phone in the morning was a simple question. What do I need to do today? What my heart was asking my phone in the morning was very different. It was who do I need to become to be loved today? And the answer was better, faster, quicker, good worker. Brothers and sisters, this is happening everywhere all the time. Researchers show that about 40% of our actions every day are not actually conscious choices of the higher level brain. They're under the radar habits and they're shaping us. Here's how they're doing that. I wanna give you a brief neurological and theological underpinning for why I can say confidently that habits form us. Neurologically speaking, the author Charles Duhigg in a really, really good book called The Power of Habit writes this. When a habit is formed, the brain stops fully functioning and the patterns that we have unfold automatically. All right, so habit activity, neurology has shown, occurs in the deepest part of the brain. It's called the basal ganglia. And that frees up, this is good for us. It frees up our our upper level thinking and saves us energy. This is how you can get in your car and you can head home after work or after an errand and you will arrive in your driveway without ever thinking about a turn that you made because your brain is freed up for better stuff. Like maybe you're turning over a sticky work problem. Maybe you're trying to silence the 1,000 requests coming from the kids in the back seat. Either way, useful. Your brain's doing better stuff. Now, this is great until it's a bad habit. So maybe it's a, a road you've carved in your evening routine that's reinforcing an addiction. Or maybe it's a road you've carved in your daily mental patterns that's reinforcing a self-critical or really anxious or depressive pattern of thinking. Maybe it's a road you've carved in your morning routine like me, which reinforces mindless submission to an operating system that is designed to get your attention and sell it to advertisers. When it's a bad habit like that, we may not want to do it, but we don't have the power to fight that we think we have because it's not our brains so much as our heart through habit being led somewhere. There's a really important distinction in what we call education and formation, right? Education, that's the stuff we learn, that we're taught, that we know about. Formation is the stuff that we practice and that we do, the things that are caught. Formation is almost entirely about habit. And unsurprisingly, formation forms our identity. Researchers call this actually the habit identity feedback loop. Uh, The idea is that our habits sort of return information to our identity and we eternalize it. So the author James Clear read a recent book in which he puts it really bluntly. It's on the front of your bulletin. Quite literally, we become our habits. 
when you combine this insight with a theological reality, the neurological reality and the theological reality, you, 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 you see that the theology is telling us our hearts are lonely hunters. We're always on the search for love somewhere. Meanwhile, our habits are leading us to all these strange places of love. What will happen when you see this is your eyes will be open to a formerly invisible world of formation happening all around you, forces competing for your heart through your habits and very significantly in our modern moment through screens. I'm, I'm laughing a little because I was at dinner with my friend Stephen Lindsay last night and we went to these, one of these pizza places and it had screens in each corner. I couldn't stop looking. The whole, like, like, I'm about to get up here and talk about this tomorrow. I could not pay attention to conversation. This is, this is not, this is everybody. This is people like me and people like you. I want you to think about the things that Paul goes through here, the practices to put off. Think about their modern incarnation and habits of screens, okay? Paul says sexual immorality. Look, if we are people who semi-consciously scroll images of human bodies or engage in habits of pornography, we will become formed in the love of bodies and ways of sex that does not exist in reality. And we will, our identity will become people who can't feel lovable unless we look like it, and of course it doesn't exist. If we semi-consciously scroll Pinterest, looking at images of perfect houses every day, we will become people who love perfect houses, and we will not feel lovable unless we have one, and guess what? It's fake. They don't exist. Nobody lives in those. If we think of anger, Paul talks about anger here. If we make a habit of just automatically tuning in to mainstream news media all day, every day, we will be formed in the love of anger itself. And we won't feel lovable unless we have somebody and something that we think is wrong that we can be mad at. These are, these are serious consequences. But what I'm trying to tell you is that to do nothing is to do something really significant. It is to submit to the default pattern of habits going on all day, every day, and it deforms our loves. Most specifically, it actually talks us out of the gospel. We start to think, oh, I need to earn my love. I need to be this kind of person to get love. I think I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is we need to make a big, a big flip. Instead of letting that chaos form us, we need to start with the gospel of love and say, how would we form our habits that would reinforce the true story that God loves us? This would be a redeemed habit identity loop. Corey mentioned that I have four sons. My wife impressively got them all here this morning while I was here in the earlier services. They are six, four, almost two, and four months. So bedtime in our house is filled with all the usual chaos that you might imagine. Spontaneous wrestling matches, showdowns over the Spider-Man toothbrush, naked escapees from Bath fleeing down the hallway. <laughs> Often at night, I feel like I turn into an impotent general who is shouting commands that despite their volume are not very well heated. And I am worried, and this, I started to become concerned about this a year or two ago, that the last image my sons have of me every day is this wild flailing man who's threatening great bodily harm if they don't get their PJs on. <laughs> um, so I, this is why I started bedtime liturgies, because I felt that I, as much as them, needed a way to move from this moment of hurried tasks to a moment where I can honestly pray for them and say I love you without it seemingly entirely hypocritical. Like we need help. 
realizing that the day is not actually characterized by all these tasks and whether or not we got them done right or well. For us and our children, we need words and patterns and rhythms that remind us that God loves us despite all that. That's the dominant fact of the world. So uh, after talking to one of our pastors in depth about this, Derek, who does something really similar with his kids, I um, started this bedtime liturgy where I ask my sons some questions. And I wanna ask them to you, actually. Hint, the answers are all yes, and then the classic Sunday school answer at the end. I want you to feel, the, feel like what I'm talking about here. And I know I'm not your parent, but we're a covenant community of love, so these questions are gonna be true anyway. Ready? Can you see my eyes? Yes. Can you see that I see your eyes? Do you know that I love you? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what bad things you do? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what good things you do? Yes. Who else loves you like that? Jesus. Rest in that love. This is, this is a, an example of a habit, habit as liturgy, which leads us into the reminder that God loves us and we do not need to earn and shape our day otherwise. As I start to talk about how, how could we let the love of the gospel form our habits, I, I introduce this idea because I want you to know it is not anything moralistic. It is not anything legalistic. Our habits will not change God's love for us, period. But God's love for us can and should actually change our habits. So what we're talking about is if God actually loves us like that, how can we tilt our days and weeks so that we're constantly tripping on habits that knock us into the arms of that kind of love? What I would suggest is that we would consider something called a rule of life for habits. Now, rule of life, you may not heard that word before because it's this fa fancy, ancient, monastic term for a set of communal patterns. So monasteries and spiritual communities for thousands of years have had things called rule of, rules of life where they sync up their habits and rhythms on a daily, weekly, even annual basis so that they be, can become formed in the love of God and neighbor. Don't get hung up on the word rule. It's the, the, the Latin root for this phrase is not actually something to obey. It's the idea of a trellis or a scaffolding. So what we're talking about here is how can we build a trellis for our days and weeks on which love would grow. Here's why this is really important for our modern moment. You, you all may know the famous business management guru, the late Peter Drucker. He wrote that in a few hundred years, when the history of our time is written from the long-term perspective, the big change they're going to see is not technology, it's not e-commerce, it's not the internet, it's that for the first time, large portions of the common population have choices. And for the first time, they will have to manage themselves and society is completely unprepared for it. Really important insight here, here to our modern moment. In a busy, choice-driven age with unprecedented freedom, we all, every day, experience massive decision fatigue. So the easy thing to do is just to go along with these habits of busyness, go along with these habits of work, go along with the habits of under-rest, go along with engaging with whatever screen surrounds you whenever it does, and just be formed into that image. You already have, this is not a metaphor, you already have a rule of life for your habits. It's just the default trellis. And on that trellis is growing all the things that you read about and that you know and feel. Anxiety, depression, overwork, busyness, loneliness. What I'm talking about is what if we had a counterformative rule of habits that actually 
formed us in the love of God and neighbor. We're gonna spend our whole February term talking about this. We're gonna, I'm gonna do some of the classes, Derek and Corey are gonna do some of the classes. We're gonna talk about what would it look like to form a rule of life for habits and love of community, habits of love for God, habits of love for neighbor. So if you wanna hear about this in real depth, please come to that. For now, I'm just gonna briefly give you one habit in each of those categories. Here's the first one, a daily habit geared towards the love of God. Scripture before phone, that's the habit. Um, I already told you about my failures with my work email, right? I wanna give you a counter example from the life of my father, actually. So as a child, I grew up expecting to find my dad in his study every morning, reading the Bible. I'm sure that he did not do that every morning, but I know that it just became the default. I expected when I came upstairs, that's what he would be doing. So recently I'm writing about this and I actually have my dad's Bible on my desk. And so I pick it up and I flip it open. This is a true story. And guess where it lands? Colossians. I, on January 7th, 2002, he annotated the date and he read chapter one. January 8th, 2002, annotated the date and read chapter two. What hit me in this moment was that this was the winter immediately following the fall where he lost the Virginia's governor's election. Okay, so he was a politician for some 15 years of my upbringing. And um, when he lost the Virginia governor's race, that was the first and biggest race that he ever lost. And I cried myself to sleep that night, no joke. You know why? Because I really wanted to live in the governor's mansion. <laughs> I re and I wanted to have a bodyguard and I heard that was a possibility. Um, <laughs> And if I thought, like, if ever there was a time for soul searching, I would have thought, you know, losing a governor's election would be the time for it. I will never forget. Next morning, I woke up, another true story, went upstairs, and he was making pancakes for us. And we sat down to eat, and he started telling us about what he had read in the Bible that morning, which was his habit. He was okay because he knew who he was. And I think my dad managed to keep a relatively stable identity through a relatively wild success and career path because he was in the habit of looking to God's love in the scriptures. And when you do that, you can actually turn to the world in love and go work in love and go parent in love, go do what you do in love. When you don't, you will, because you are like all of us, the war of the new and the old self, you will turn to the world and look for love. This is what's happening to me and a lot of other well-intentioned Christians when we look to our screens the first thing in the day and guess what we're looking for? Love. And they would love to capture our habits for us. Habit number two, I'm gonna stay on screens for a second. Um, this is a weekly habit geared towards the love of neighbor. And the idea is to set a habit where you curate your weekly media intake. Why would I say this? Here's why, curation is driven by limits, okay? When you have a limited one gallery wall, you have to curate things on it. You have to pick what are the best paintings that I want on this. And I'm concerned, I think like Mr. Rogers, about what is happening in our modern era of a, a constant uncurated stream of media from every direction, like broken water faucets. I'm not worried about this because stories aren't important. I'm worried about it because stories are so important. Stories more than any Sunday school or sermon like this are gonna form you and form my idea of what the good life actually is, what it means to be human. But now we're living in a moment where because of the medium that stories come in, they're designed to get us to watch the next one. It is really, really hard to choose carefully. It is really, really easy to let everybody else choose for us. 
And I'm not just talking about like Netflix or Amazon, I am talking about that, but, but I'm talking about news media as well, the constant stream of updates and alerts. Look, here's what's happening. I'm not as concerned about our personal holiness here as I am about our ability to love our neighbor. Because what's happening is we are together collectively being rapidly formed into a public who cannot agree on what a fact is, who, who, who genuinely feels hatred for their neighbor, who genuinely feels fear and trepidation over a person of a different race, a person of a different political party, a person of a different nationality. This is happening because all the warring factions have one thing in common. The messages are driven by anger and fear. And when we submit ourselves to that uncurated stream, we will be formed in it. And we will be stuck in these factions. Listen to what Paul says in verse 11. This is totally different. Paul says in verse 11, when we adopt practices that form us in the image of God, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. That is a radical message of unity that our modern moment desperately needs. We won't get there unless we curate our media differently. You want a way to start? Take Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Don't watch any news. If you want to watch something, watch one of his speeches. Don't watch any shows. You want to watch something? Watch the movie Selma. You will see there what I'm talking about of rooting your public engagement in love instead of anger and fear. Here's a last habit, a habit of community. Weekly habit of spending one hour in conversation with a friend. All right, so the idea here is that you know we need friends. We were made for friendship. We were created in the image of Trinitarian friendship. How much more do we need friends at a time where we're incentivized to, to curate our every moment online, show off our best to everybody? And at the same time, we can have a completely secret life on the internet. How much more do we need somebody like Richard was talking about who knows our stuff before whom we can be undone? I, I see the gospel in this practice because in the practice of cultivating these kind of deep friendships through weekly conversation, we see the gospel. Here, what, one way to sum up the gospel is this. You are really messed up, but God loves you anyway. One way to summarize friendship is people who stick around long enough to see how messed up we are and then say, remarkably, I'm sticking around anyway. When, when, when we curate lives where we, we are in conversation with these kind of friends, we embody the gospel to each other. One of the most amazing things about friendship and community is that when you look at the habit research, and this specifically comes from Alcoholic Anonymous, so again, like what Richard was talking about, you cannot have meaningful habit change without two ingredients. One, a belief that change is possible. Two, a community that shares that belief and walks through the change with you. You know what we call that? It's the body of Christ. This is why Paul ends talking about all these communal practices we need together. We can't do this alone. This is why Derek's gonna spend next week talking about communal habits. Earlier, I told you about my dad's Bible. Let me close with this. There was something I did not tell you. Um, when I flipped open those pages, I didn't just read dates. I actually read my name. Under each of those dates that I read you was written another annotation that said, with Justin. So this was my senior year in high school, um, at the time where I imagine I probably seemed the least receptive to parenting. It was during that time that my dad started inviting me over and over to wake up with him and read the Bible and pray. 
Confession. I don't remember a single verse we read. I don't remember a single prayer that we prayed. You know what I remember? I remember the feeling that there was someone who loved me precisely when I was the most unlovable. What I remember was reading about a God who loves us like that. What I remember is reading about a God who is love, his love is like a parent, and that's the love that makes us lovable. All, these, all this habit stuff, yeah, habits will form you, inevitably, so choose carefully. But they are neither the power nor the point. The point is to imitate Christ, become like the Father who loves us. The point is to look at him and in his gaze find the love that we're looking for. So in the last years of Mr. Rogers' life, shortly before he died, he gave a graduation speech and he reminded us that from the time we were very little, we have all had people who have smiled us into smiling, people who have talked us into talking, sung us into singing, and loved us into loving. This idea of cultivating gospel-centered habits is simply to lift our gaze to that father, parent, Jesus. He is the one who's talking us into talking, smiling us into smiling, and loving us into loving. Let me pray that that would be true. Lord, we are so grateful for your love, and we ask that in your gaze we would be changed into new people, people who develop new habits that would reinforce that beautiful love. And Lord, especially that we might take that love and bring it to the world that so desperately needs it. We ask this in your name, amen.